Ephesians chapter 4. Earlier this year, when our elders got together to pray about what 2021 might look for us, look like for us as a church, the theme that they kept coming back to is worship and fellowship leading to ministry. Worship, gathering together again as a people after the pandemic, fellowship, getting to know each other again. I mean, and just take a look around. Like, look at the faces in the room. Some of these guys we haven't seen in a while. And, and, and some of you haven't been to worship because of the pandemic. And, and it feels strange as we come to worship. And sometimes we see a few people, and most people are at home, and we see more people some weeks. And so we have to get to know each other again. And so we're going to provide opportunities for you to be able to do that more and more over the course of the year. Worship and fellowship that leads to ministry, that is, that helps you gear up to use your gifts to be able to come back to worship and to be able to come out of the isolation of the pandemic and out of some of the depression that some of us felt in the midst of that isolation and be able to re-engage with our gifts in the context of Christ's covenant community. And so today, we turn to the passage that we as elders first thought of when we thought about that phrase, worship and fellowship leading to ministry. And that is what you read in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, particularly the verse that says that he has given, verse 11, he gave the apostles and prophets and evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. That's the key phrase that we focused in on. And so we're coming now from thinking about what does it mean to use our gifts in Genesis 1 and 2 to now spend time in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you're willing and able, would you stand together? And I'll read Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. If Ephesians is a new book to you, know that the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 19 visited the city of Ephesus. It was the crowning jewel of the area where most of the, it was the center of cultural and, and religious life in the ancient Near East. Ephesus had the great temple of Artemis there. There were silversmiths that made idols and they sold them across the region. In fact, when Paul preached the gospel and the business went down, they rose up in a riot against the Apostle Paul because he struck at the economic heartbeat of the ancient pagan world. And later, Paul leaves Ephesus and goes to Macedonia, and then he's imprisoned. And while he's in prison in AD 62, six years or so after he visited Ephesus and lived there for two years, he writes this letter. And so beginning, therefore, at verse 1 of chapter 4, this is the word of the Lord. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of his according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. Each of you, when you came in this morning, received a puzzle piece. Would you take that puzzle piece out of your pocket, find that puzzle piece in your purse, grab that puzzle piece and hold on to it for a second. Look at it. Notice how this puzzle piece is different from your neighbors. There's a lot of pieces to this puzzle. Every one of us in Christ's church is like a puzzle piece that fits. We're all different shapes. We're all different sizes. We're all different angles. We all reflect some small portion of a much bigger, more beautiful picture. And if you can guess what this picture is over the coming weeks as you get more and more of these puzzle pieces when you come to worship, please let me know, and I will gladly reward you with a prize. All of us in Christ's church are pieces to a puzzle that is far bigger than yourself. And the problem with many of us is that we have grown up in a world that is so radically individualistic that we, by default, think about our relationship with God in radically individualistic terms. And one of the amazing benefits of our history as Protestants is that we stand on the shoulder of giants, Huss and Wycliffe and Martin Luther and John Calvin, these amazing men of faith who led us in this incredible, healthy transition from a Babylonian captivity to good works and sacraments to understanding that we as Christians are saved not by our own good deeds, but by the work of Christ alone. We are saved by his works, not our own. And it's by faith. The 50-cent word is justification by faith. You are justified before the Father because of what Christ has done by faith, not by your good works. But one of the implications of the Protestant Reformation, which was an unintended consequence of Martin Luther, was that no longer was faith required by the mother church to be part of her, to submit to the sacraments, to become part of the, what was then the Catholic church of the Western world. And Martin Luther's idea of the priesthood of all believers never intended for you to think that you can exist on your own as a Christian. It was meant to help you recognize that you don't need a priest to intercede for you anymore. Jesus intercedes for you but that the community was still, even in the Reformation, crucial to your spiritual development. 
But soon after the, the Protestant Reformation, there came the Enlightenment that swept through Europe and more and more of self-aggrandizement um, happened, more value of the self over the community. And slowly but surely, the puzzle pieces, which was a beautiful mosaic, began to get stamped. And those puzzle pieces began to get picked out one by one. And people took those little puzzle pieces and they tucked them in their heart and they said, this is all I need, me and Jesus, we're good forever. And the tragedy is, if you live your life and it's just like me and Jesus forever, it's kind of like having porridge for every meal of your life. I mean, will, is it possible to live off of porridge? There are exceptions, perhaps, to the rule where people could exist off of that. But why not avail yourself to the beautiful kaleidoscope of foods and cultures and the amazing things that happen to you because your body is certainly healthier when you take in the diversity of God's people and God intends for you to be part of his covenant community. And even in the ancient Near East, when Paul is writing to the Ephesians, he is writing so that they will have a firm understanding of what the covenant community is to be together in the midst of a pagan world. And so if you were to summarize the book of Ephesians, you might say it like this. The church is part of God's eternal plan, which grows as a result of God's power, working through believers, overcoming their spiritual enemies. The church is part of God's eternal plan, which grows as a part of God's power working through believers as they overcome their spiritual enemies. Of course, we overcome our spiritual enemies through the Holy Spirit, who empowers us to do that. Because again, by grace, we're saved. So in Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul turns toward the Ephesians with his pen, and he says, you are to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Why are you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling? And how are you to do that? You are to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Why are you to do that? And how are you to do that? Let's look at the text together and let's glean. The two halves of the book of Ephesians basically are divided right down the middle. And on the first half, you have doctrine, Ephesians 1 to 3. In the second half, you have duty, what you therefore must do. The first half, you have a vision of the new society. This is who the church is in light of what Jesus has done. In the second, you have a vision of the new standards that you are to live. The first half, you have exposition. This is, this is what God has done. And in the second half, you have commands. This is what you must do. The first half, you have creeds. The second half, you have deeds. You see the picture, right? Splits it right down the middle. It's just like in the book of Romans. The first 11 chapters of the book of Romans is all about this amazing missiology, this amazing truth about what God has done for you. And then the last four chapters are about what? They're about what you therefore must do. And in most of Paul's writings, he uses a little um, word to connect those two halves. It's a pinch point, this conjunction. And you see it here. Therefore. Whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, what are you to ask? 
What's it there for? This is an inferential conjunction, which means that Paul is turning our eyes from creeds to deeds. He is shifting the whole focus of the book. And what is he trying to tell us? He is trying to say that you are to, in light of all that God has given you, you are to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. I I heard this week an, an Irish phrase from a friend who said, may the coins in your pocket be the least of your wealth. And that's true of what the whole first half of Ephesians tells us. I mean, Paul says these amazing, lofty, nosebleed, crazy cool things. Like, listen to this. You have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love. He predestined you for adoption through, as sons. The Lord has called you to, his, to be his own. He has adopted you as a son or a daughter if you trust in him by faith. And in light of all that he's done for you, you should walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Biblical Christianity always has a Therefore. Legalism doesn't have a therefore. It just starts with the commands. There are no indicatives, no statements about what God has done. It's all about do, 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 do. Check the boxes. Make God love you, perhaps, through your good behavior. Dead orthodoxy doesn't have a therefore either. It just gives you the theology. It just gives you the doctrine. And we've all perhaps been in Christian communities that overemphasize one over the other. And we're not a perfect church. We're not going to get it right either. But we're going to try to preach the word in such a way that shows you the balance of Scripture. It's like Paul has has weighed down the scales with doctrine. And now he's going to say, therefore, so what? Everything I've given to you to believe is to be believed in order for you to go and live in a way that's worthy of your calling. And if you can tell me all about theology and you can show me your degrees and we can talk about things that are on your wall to show you how bright you are, but you don't have a life that walks worthy of the calling, Paul says, you have not yet fully understood what you say you believe. And so Paul begins to add weight to the scale to bring balance to it. Creeds and deeds go together. Biblical Christianity always has a therefore. I, Paul, a prisoner in or for the Lord, Paul says that he has sealed his own commitment through his own suffering for his namesake. Back in verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner, of Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. And here, verse 1, chapter 4, it says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. Paul's in prison. Why? Because he is demonstrating that as he stands for the gospel, it comes at a cost. His life backed up his mouth. And isn't that why Christianity is so frustrating for those of you here who don't believe and you're looking on, if you're watching, you're looking on at Christians and saying, their mouths are far bigger than their lives. And it's our job to recognize that our call to follow Jesus is going to come at a cost to us. 
Do you know that people were burned at the stake to translate this book into English for you? They died for it. And one of these days, economically, we may suffer for our faith. Are you prepared for that? Are you playing Christianity as long as it's convenient for you? Seriously, no, this is like not rhetorical for you. Am I? Like, do we have the ability to recognize that we stand on the shoulders of giants? And one day in eternity, we're not going to be thinking about, oh, comparing our suffering. We're going to be just blown over by the beauty of Jesus for all eternity, learning better and better and having our theology shaped more and more into perfection in light of Jesus' presence. But don't you realize that there are men and women who even today, even today, are suffering in prison, who haven't seen their family in years, nor do they even know if they're alive, because they believe this book is true. And when they read the words, I, Paul, the prisoner for the Lord, they say, I get that. Do you walk in a way worthy of your calling. Notice that Paul uses the word here to walk. He says, I urge you, parakaleo, I urge you, I exhort you, I, um, I, I want you to feel the force, I urge you to do this, to, to walk, peripateo. It means to, to put one foot in front of the other. There are passages that, that um, in the New Testament that talk about the journey of the Christian life as running, for example. Think about Hebrews 12, for example. You run, or 1 Corinthians, you run the race with endurance, right? But here Paul says you are to, you are to walk. Why would he say that you are to walk? He says that you are to walk because the Christian life is to put one foot in front of the other. It is not a race. It is, you are not a quarter horse, friends. You are a plow horse. A quarter horse, a plow horse is not as muscular or as beautiful or as expensive as a quarter horse. But Paul says you are a plow horse. You are to put one foot in front of the other. And why are we to do that? Because when you Walk. You are to walk in repentance, seeing yourself as you really are, a sinner in, sight, in the midst of God's crazy, beautiful holiness. And when you do that, you walk toward him day by day by day. You put one foot in front of the other. And some of you, this time of year, you lather yourself up with new Bible reading programs and you get all excited about new things you're going to do and then you peter out. Listen, if you give me five pieces of gum, I'm going to chew all five of them that morning. Like, I know what that's like. That's my world I live in, too. Some of us run with really high RPMs. And we have to remember that the Christian life is a walk. Because it is progress, not speed, that Jesus wants from us. There are neighbors of mine that are from Belarus, and they're Belarusian, and uh, their names are Olga and Yuri, and they walk five or ten miles every day, Olga especially, and so I, I'm going to be shocked when I see her in a car one day because she just, she just walks through our neighborhood all the time. 
And we used to, we used to enjoy their presence. We'd see them walk by our house. And so we used to put out a bottle of water. And some days we'd put out a, a glass of wine on the top of my mailbox because we know they're going to come by. And, and so they, they, they would return a favor and they would give us a bottle of wine as a, as a sign of thanks. And we had this fun little game that we play together. It's really neat. But Olga walks like 10 miles a day. She doesn't run. And I asked her, why do you walk so much? And she says, well, isn't that the best way to stay in shape and not tear up your body? <laughs> I grew up in a world where in Belarus and Minsk, we walked everywhere. And so now that I'm in Oklahoma, I still walk everywhere. And our jobs as Christians is, is to view ourselves not as a marathon runner, but as a marathon walker. And listen, it's not that exciting, is it? I mean, I know that we want to say Christianity is exciting and we want it to be entertaining. But children, listen to me. The church is not about entertaining you. It's about helping you walk slowly but surely over time. And I know that comes at a cost because you're like, oh man, I wish it was more exciting. You, don't, you never see on ESPN, you never see like marathon walks. You see like vroom, NASCAR races and you see, you know, you see boxers going at it. But the Christian life is, is, is a walk. And repentance is us turning one direction and walking another. It is a walk. We are to walk in a manner worthy. Worthy. Paul elsewhere in Scripture talks about our worthiness when he says, for example, in Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Or later in Colossians 1.10, he says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him, bearing fruit. Or 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, he uses this idea of being worthy. It's biblical language to be worthy. And if you're not careful, you could think that walking in a manner worthy of God means that you're walking in such a way as to earn his favor. And that's not the biblical meaning of the term worthy. To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord means to, to show what the Lord deserves of us, not what we do to earn his favor. It is to walk in gratitude. It is to walk in amazement that he has given you so much. I mean, read the first three chapters of Ephesians this week and think about how the change in your pocket is the least of your wealth, no matter how much change you have. And to operate by gratitude. A father comes home. You know, many of us, when you travel, we bring gifts to our children when we come home. And some days the gifts are, you know, a thing of peanuts from Southwest Airlines. And other times they're these great gifts we bring to our kids. But, you know, think about two sons who receive gifts. And one son is like, oh, yes, thank you, Dad. I love these peanuts. They're awesome. And another son says, huh, that all you got? And some of us, when we receive God's amazing gifts, like he, you woke up this morning and you breathed in a healthy way. The Lord has provided for you. He's protected you through COVID. He has given you a house under which you can have protection from the rain. He has given you amazing things, but you have grown ungrateful because of your comparison to other people. And you find yourself spiritually in angst 
But the Lord says, here, I've given you something. It looks like peanuts to you, but it is filet mignon of the gospel. Have eyes to see it. It's beautiful. And to walk worthy means that you recognize the incredible gifts that he's given to you and you embrace them. Then he uses this term calling, doesn't he? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He uses calling twice in Ephesians in verse 1-8. He says, this is the hope of your calling. And then later he uses it in chapter 1, verse 1 here. And then later down in verse 4, just as you were called. Paul is quite fond of the word calling. He speaks, it speaks of God's gracious and efficacious or um, um, applicable work in your life. He has called you. In Romans uh, 8, it says, those he foreknew, he called justified, glorified. He, the link between our predestination and our justification is our calling. He has called you, you. He has called you. Somebody this week was talking to me about this whole idea of calling and predestination, and they were like, I don't know if I, if I totally understand that or buy that, because why would somebody, when preaching the gospel, say, well, if you're called, come? Well, calling is always given to us to be a beautiful and helpful doctrine as Christians to look back upon and say, thank you, Jesus, for the fact that you initiated salvation in my life. It was not ever, it's not ever preached. If you listen to the gospel sermons, the Acts, it's never said, whosoever is predestined, now come. Peter just says, you believe. Believe. And so if you're hearing my voice and you're caught up by this whole idea of predestination, believe. A woman walked up to Charles Spurgeon one time in London and said, well, doctor, I don't know if I'm actually a Christian. I don't know if I'm actually predestined by God. I, I wonder and I worry and I fret about whether I'm predestined by God. And Spurgeon said to her, do you believe the gospel? Yes, with all my heart. Well, then rest assured that you are indeed called. So friends, as you share the gospel with other people, don't put stumbling blocks of, of the idea of predestination in their way. Preach the good news of the gospel to them and then let the doctrine of predestination, which is true and a balm for our souls, come in the right order in their life and let them be able to rest in it and to take great solace from it and let them deal with Jesus on the front end. And then see on the back end how he has been at work in their life far longer than they could have ever imagined because he called them. We have a holy call. Not only do we have a call that's efficacious to become a Christian, we have a holy call. God has call, called us with a holy calling, 1 Timothy 1.9. He's called you to holiness. He hasn't just called you to be a Christian. He's called you to live that out in your holiness by obeying his commands. We have a call to fellowship. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says we are called to fellowship with believers. You're called to believers. As much as you care about your holiness, you should also care about your covenant community. We're called to live life and lead life together. And God's free and sovereign grace in our life drives us to reflect that glory in light of his call for us. There is no debtor's ethic. 
You don't lead a life worthy of the calling because you're trying to pay God back. God is not like the bank of your college loans. He graciously gives to you. And as a result, we graciously serve him in light of what he's done for us. So why are we to walk? Because the money in your pocket is the least of your wealth. And Jesus has given you so much in giving you his life. He's called you, adopted you as his brothers. The father has adopted you as a son and as a daughter. He has lavished upon you every spiritual blessing in Christ. And therefore, you're to walk worthy of your calling. And you are to see yourself in light as one piece in the midst of a much, much bigger puzzle into which you perfectly fit. Secondly, how are you to walk? This whole portion of Ephesians is about unity and the maturity of a Christian. And he says that you are to walk with humility. Humility in Greek is loveliness of mind. It conveys the opposite of high-mindedness or pride. Humility is recognizing who we are as sinners in light of God's holiness. Humility in secular Greek was used as a derogatory term. It was used as those who were lowly minded. It was used as those who didn't have any self-confidence. It was used of those who didn't have any power. And isn't it used, quite honestly, in the same way today? Like, think about what humility is. Humility is the opposite of saying that I'm the victim. Humility is the opposite of of asserting my rights. Humility says that the other person in the room is more important than me. They're not more valuable than I am, but they are more important from my perspective. Humility in the gospel is a fruit, not a root virtue. What do I mean by that? When I was young, my grandfather, Paul Paul Johnson, used to have a garden across the street from his house, and he would spend all the spring getting that garden ready so that by the time Thanksgiving rolled around, the grandchildren could run through the corn and we could pick the carrots. He did all the spade work. He focused on the roots so that we could enjoy the fruit. And the way that you grow in humility is not saying, okay, brush my teeth, get my coffee, read the paper, now work on my humility skills. The way you grow in humility is by doing those fundamental things like being in his word, and prayer, and serving others, and you find that over time, the fruit of humility has borne in your life. It is an indirect virtue that you pursue as you pursue those key and crucial virtues of the sacraments of fellowship and of prayer. Philippians uh, chapter 2, a great passage that speaks of Christ emptying himself. Consider yourselves as less important than others. Consider the humility of Christ who emptied himself. There's a play on words there. To empty yourself is vain conceit. It is saying he emptied himself of the conceit, which means emptiness, the vanity, the emptiness. Jesus is worthy of glory, but he emptied himself. He, he let go of the weight for your sake. You are to do the same. 
Twice in the New Testament, we have the quotation from the Proverbs that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the Colossians 3. Those who have been chosen by God put on a heart of humility. Philippians 2 tells us that we are to be like Jesus and regard others as more important than ourselves. First Corinthians, uh, Colossians chapter 3 says you are to put on humility like a garment. It ought to characterize your life. What does that mean for us? It means that as Christians in the midst of the woke culture, in the midst of the culture of self-aggrandizement, in the midst of the world of social media, it means that you are to conduct yourself in a markedly different way than the rest of the world. It means that you are to not think less of yourself. It means that you're just to think about yourself less and you're to think about the person that's in front of you more. And the reason why Paul says this is because by nature, all of us are arrogant. We are arrogant by nature. And he needs to say this because we are not very humble people at all. And the only way to grow in that humility is to see the one who entered the world of our arrogance, who humbled himself even to the point of death, so that the one who had every right to be arrogant and proud and who deservedly is the only one who could say, worship me. There's no one else greater than he is. The Lord Jesus Christ, Hebrews chapter 1. In these last times and in these various ways, God has appointed his son, whom he made heir of all things and through whom he made the world. Jesus was the instrument through which the world was made. He was there. And yet he humbled himself and he died on a cross. That's big time. Secondly, he says, not only are you to be humble, but he says you are to be gentle. Gentleness means that you are to consider others and you are to waive your rights. Gentleness is the opposite of self-assertion. Humility has the relationship that you share with the Lord, your sinfulness in light of his holiness. Gentleness is your relationship with those around you. And let me just say very quickly that one of the greatest challenges that I see in our church is the way that generations work together. And we see one generation raise up another generation who also have committed their lives to Jesus, but they have very different views on many secondary issues than you do. And it creates a real rub for you, especially perhaps when it comes to political positions, which is where it most recently probably touched your nerve. And we have forgotten how to listen. And maybe the next generation has something to teach the older generation. And younger generation, maybe your fathers and mothers actually have something to teach you. Do you listen to them? Are we a church that can maybe disagree on secondary issues together, but can you hear each other? Can we cultivate an environment where it's okay to listen and to disagree perhaps on matters that we may feel very, very strongly about, but which aren't gospel-centric matters and that there is variation in Christ's church and both can be faithful to it? Can we have a good discussion about that, and can we do so with gentleness, which means to not usurp your rights, but it means to say, I will listen. 
and I will be gentle in the way that I respond. Galatians 6.1 says, you who are spiritual should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, lest you also be tempted to fall. Gentleness, like humility, is prayerfully cultivated. And these ideas of walking in a manner worthy of his calling, these ideas that, of humility and of gentleness, these are things that each of us are called to as we learn to use our particular gifts. These are the key ingredients. No matter what your particular unique gifting is, these are the key ingredients. The next thing he says is patience. Why would he say patience? Because it assumes that there is impatience in the church. I mean, as awesome as you are, there's somebody who thinks you're really irritating. <laughs> and that's what the church is about. Paul assumes that there's going to be people who rub against each other in the church. And it's our job as Christians to exercise patience. And I'm irritating. And you're irritating. And so the better we get at being able to demonstrate gentleness and patience to each other, the better we will manifest what it means to be a biblical covenant-centered community in this area. The word patience in the Old Testament means that, G, that God is long of nose. Did you know that? He's long of nose. When somebody gets angry, what happens? They get red-faced. Their nose gets red. The original Rudolph, right, so to speak. He's red-nosed. God is red-nosed. He has a nose that is angry. And to be long of nose means that his nose begins to swell with redness and it gets bigger and it seems to get longer. And so the Old Testament metaphor says, someone who is patient is long of nose. They are patient. They, in their wrath, don't strike back. They hold back their anger and they're patient with it. They, they are long of nose. Patience is long-suffering, which makes allowance for other people's shortcomings, and it endures wrong rather than flying to a rage or desiring vengeance. Patience is endurance even under affliction and even at great cost to yourself. Patience means that you will live in a world and in a context where you may be misunderstood. But that is the world into which we are called as Christians to enter. First Peter, or Second Peter chapter 3 says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of the Lord as our salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, Peter says. It is the patience of the Lord shown towards you that allows you even to have a relationship with him because he was long of nose towards you. He was patient. This is the fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? Love is patient, 1 Corinthians 13 says. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience because we are to cultivate that. Isn't that hard to do in your family? Isn't it hard to do? It's hard to do in mine. So friends, we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Why? Because the, cho the change in your pocket is the least of your wealth. He has lavished upon you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do you recognize that? He's called you into this great, amazing picture of which you are a very crucial piece. And he calls you to do that with humility, 
and with gentleness and with patience. And you are to bear with one another in love. This is what it means to be the church. Until you can think about how you're gonna use your gifts outwardly, you have to think about how do you interact with your brothers and sisters inwardly. Are you humble before the Lord vertically and are you gentle toward your brothers and sisters horizontally? Do you have patience in your heart to be able to demonstrate love toward them? Because the New Testament is fiercely realistic about the church and it assumes that you're gonna grade against one another in time and you're gonna grade against me and I'm gonna grade against you. And we have to learn together what it means to walk in a manner worthy of our calling with all humility, all gentleness, and all patience. Because the Lord Jesus Christ certainly did that for us, didn't he? Even at the Lord's table, as we're going to partake in just a minute, he humbly served, washed their feet. Jesus was patient and gentle toward Judas, who betrayed him that very night. And so also Jesus is patient towards you. And the same irritability you feel about somebody else, that's the same irritability Jesus feels towards you. <laughs> but he opens his arms in grace because he says, you're mine and I love you. Come to me, all who are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Can we walk in a manner worthy of the calling together? We will do it with fits and starts and we will bump along the journey together, but it is ours to do. We are pieces of the same puzzle. It's a beautiful picture of God's covenant community. We all play a part. Put those pieces back on that table. Find your spot. Get into the groove, as it were, by demonstrating humility and gentleness and patience because your Savior, the Lord Jesus, gave himself up, did not demand his rights, gave you back a gentle answer at your harsh words toward you and was patient in bringing you to awareness of his greatness and your utter need for gratitude for his grace in your life.